I hope you all had a really good 4th of July, and however that looked for you, I pray it was a sweet time. This today, I hope as you were singing, and if you didn't realize it before, then the rest of the service when you sing, I hope you sing with a little bit more gusto and a little bit more joy, not that it was lacking the first time, but the reason being uh, because this is our dear, sweet sister, Amy Hanlon's last Sunday. Is that confirmed? It is finally confirmed. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was shifting for a while, but it is pegged down. This is her last Sunday. You leave Saturday? Saturday? Ne- this coming Saturday. And so uh, the, it is, she's played the organ here for 30 plus years. 30, yeah. <laughs> I've often seen her come in on Fridays and Saturdays or Thursdays, and she'll come in and practice and warm up and get ready, and uh, I am just, we are, we are truly have been very blessed and served by our sister in many ways, and in addition to the organ, she's prayed for us, she's come alongside us, she's encouraged me in all these different ways. Uh, I am just very thankful, and you will be, I think I can speak on all behalf of the entire church. You will be dearly missed. And I also speak on behalf of the entire church. It's not too late. Just cancel that trip. Just save them, right? No. <laughs> She's like, it is too late. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. Uh, you will be missed. So, so the rest of the service, as you're singing, just, just sing, knowing this, this could be the last time we hear that organ at the hands of Amy herself, a very talented musician, can read music, play it as she sees it, uh, and she's employed that gift for the glory of God. Thank you, sister. All right, we come to our third sermon. This will be a four-part sermon. I was going to make it a two-part sermon and then turn into three parts. Actually, it might be five parts by the time it's all said and done. Uh, I just couldn't. Every time I was like, ah, just so much would go left unsaid if I just jammed all four uh, remaining into one sermon. And so uh, I hope you will be merciful to me. You have to be. (laughs) Blessed are the merciful. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, so today we come to our third sermon on your blessed life now. Uh, your blessed life now, uh, pulling from a, a popular title of a not very good book, but hopefully, Lord willing, this sermon by itself, Matthew 5 through 7, the sermon of Jesus is far better your blessed life now. I invite you to study it with me now. All right, here's context. If you're just joining us, we have, uh, we remember that Jesus is coming. He's taken, he's taken the people to, so to speak, up on the mountain. He sat down and he opened his mouth and began to teach. And he is assuming the role, assuming the position of the wisdom of God, the prophet, the King, you recall, this sermon is framed beginning and end. We'll see this again in, in the sermon. Uh, it's framed with that call, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and so Jesus takes his seat and he begins to stand in line and lay claim to his throne, to his people in a striking fashion. He is inviting us through the Beatitudes, the introduction 
to his Sermon on the Mount, he's inviting us into a way of seeing life such that we may flourish. And so you really could classify the Beatitudes as a type of wisdom literature from our Lord. Uh, one scholar likened it to saying, you know, you have these, these little flip cards that you put on your desk that you flip it over for each day, and there's like an inspirational saying, those types of things that, that these inspirational sayings invite you, the reader, to hear them and see life from a different perspective in order to progress yourself as a person and to aid your flourishing. Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts saying, uh, blessed or happy, or we've been using his translation, flourishing are the merciful, flourishing are the peacemakers, flourishing are the pure in heart, flourishing, right? He's, he's, he's inviting his hearers at once to repent and in the same breath to see life and live life in light of his kingdom so that they can find true flourishing and simultaneously and live for the glory of God. And these two things aren't in tension, or sorry, aren't in opposition. They are in tension. They are not in opposition to each other. Sometimes we wonder, well, do I seek my highest good, my glory, or do I seek God's glory? Sorry, not my glory. Uh, my joy, or do I seek God's glory? Do I live for his highest good? And, and sometimes these truths can get out of whack and out of tension, and the answer is both. When God invites you to live holy for his glory, whatever you eat, drink, or do to do all to the glory of God, he's simultaneously inviting you to live for the purpose for which you were created and simultaneously find life and joy forevermore. This has been the passion that has driven a very famous pastor, uh, John Piper and Desiring God Ministries, to say uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Series interrupting. Uh, when we are most satisfied in him, that idea that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied, most happy, most treasuring him, and we show all the world in that that he is to be praised and he alone, and he's worth losing everything for. And if you lose everything for him, really you find, as Jesus says, you've lost nothing and gained everything. And so he invites us through the Beatitudes as we begin to see to this what we could call an upside-down kingdom of God narrative or ethic. So with that, let's jump into the sermon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these concepts, sometimes they feel like they are overwhelm our brain's capacities to grasp at them. They overwhelm our heart's capacities to feel them and to be impacted by them. And it truly is. And so, Father, we do ask for your Holy Spirit, the teacher, the comforter, the convictor, to come and to give us illumination into this passage. May you speak to us truly, speak to us and meet with us in your word through your Son, recorded by the Spirit for our good. And so, Lord, would you grant that we would gain much profit this morning as we hear the words of Jesus. We pray, Father, that if there are some here who have never tasted the mercy, that they would come and repent and find life and forgiveness in Christ this morning. We pray also for Maui Philippine Baptist Church. I thank you for Pastor Bong. I thank you for their long partnership with us as we share this facility. 
We do pray, Lord, that you would work in their church in greater and greater degrees of glory. Would you sustain Pastor Bong and his wife and his son and his daughter and his family? Would you sustain them? Would you sustain their leadership team? And we do ask that in time that they would continue, Lord, to expound and to proclaim the gospel and that many in Kahului with us would hear the gospel and believe. And so, Lord, do this work in MPBC. Unite our hearts in new ways in the months, weeks, years going forward so that all may hear in this community. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. All right, here's the big idea. Here it is. We got to move quickly. The merciful and pure will flourish for sure. There it is. The merciful and pure will flourish for sure. Nice, easy for you to memorize. If I had to sum up these two in context with it, the merciful and pure will flourish for sure. Number one, I got two points. I'll let you guess what they are. Blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure. Good guess. You guys are tracking so far with me this morning. Awesome. All right. Here we go. Flourishing, using the translation of scholar Jonathan Pennington. Flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, when that lands on our ears, you probably hear that as a positive thing, don't you? That's a good thing. Yeah, flourishing are the merciful. That sounds really good in our culture. That's something we want to practice. We want to emulate. We value that. Uh, We consider it a positive trait. But I want you to understand, uh, we are actually recipients. The reason why you hear that as a good thing is because you are a recipient what we, of what we could call a Christian worldview or a Christian heritage. Even if you are not a Christian this morning, if you're listening online or if you've heard this kind of sentimentality in our culture, they inherit, we could say they borrow from the Christian heritage that has extolled and exemplified the virtue of mercy. They have borrowed from that heritage. That is not a necessarily natural inclination. It certainly is not how it would have been received when Jesus said it. When Jesus said this this beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, in his original audience, he is currently living where? In Israel. And they're occupied by who? Rome. On the heels of what world empire? Greece. Right? And so the, the cultural milieu, the cultural setting on which this would have landed in the ancient world, mercy was not a virtue, it was a weakness. It would have not have been extolled. It would have been disdained. Here's uh, one historian. His name is Rodney Stark. He said this was the sentiment among non-Christian philosophers. Here, I quote him. Here's what he says. Mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because, check this out, mercy involves providing unearned help or relief, it is therefore contrary to justice. Another scholar, his name is E.A. Judge, he explained that classical philosophers taught that mercy indeed is not governed by reason at all, and humans must learn to curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. This scholar continues, pity was a 
defect of character, unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. Close quote. If you heard this and you were a Roman centurion, perhaps, or you heard this later in the streets as vendors were rubbing shoulders, you hear what that guy Jesus said, that rabbi, that new teacher? He said, blessed are the merciful. <laughs> what? After all, the Romans weren't necessarily known for being merciful, were they? Pilate's version of mercy, do you recall what Pilate's version of mercy was? It was a Roman scourging of our Savior instead of a cross. That was his version of mercy. That was Rome. What about the Jews? Well, the Jews of the day weren't much better even though they had the Old Testament law, they had God's word embedded all throughout the law is mercy to the brim. The Psalms have uttered and extolled the goodness of God's mercy. Yahweh himself was said, Exodus 34, to be a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. At this point, however, the religious leaders exuded a merciless, expression of religiosity that valued external acts and displays of righteousness only. Outwardly, the Sanhedrin, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they seem pious, but inwardly they lacked any true poverty of spirit or heart of mercy. I want to give you two examples to show the lack of mercy in the leaders of Israel and in the people that would have caused Jesus' words to land like a bombshell, right? So lest we think, well, that's Rome, but what about Israel? Israel also had a merciless heart. John chapter 8, I offer to you as one example. Verses 1 through 11, you know this passage? You remember this passage, don't you? Famous account of a woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees and scribes bring this woman before Jesus. They want to test him. They want to catch him. They want to lay some accusation against Jesus. And so they bring this woman as Jesus is teaching in the temple. They drag her in there. They throw her down and they say, they, they read the charge and they say, Moses commanded this woman to be stoned. What do you say? And it says they said this in verse 6 to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And you remember what Jesus did? It says Jesus bent down, squatted down, bent down, and he begun with his finger to write on the ground what he wrote. We don't necessarily know for sure. It says they continued to ask him, Ask him what he says, and it says he stood up and said to them, you remember what he said? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If time would permit, this is an incredible passage to expound, but we don't have time for that. 
In this instance, the Pharisees and scribes were more concerned about accusing Jesus. They were more concerned about keeping their own influence, their own positions of authority. More than that, they were concerned uh, with themselves than they actually were with the law of Moses. They were more concerned with their power than they were with the woman whom they laid down at her feet. They were more concerned about their glory than the glory of God. They had no concern for the law of Moses in this, uh, in this instance. We know that. You know how we know that they had no concern for the law of Moses? Because the very passage that they're referring to in Leviticus and Deuteronomy said, bring both the woman and the man to be killed. Only here we see the woman. They have no concern for true justice or faithfulness. They're merciless. Her life to them is of no account. That's the leaders, merciless. What about the people? Well, maybe the people are a little bit better. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. Another famous account, we have the account of the blind beggar Bartimaeus. You remember blind Bartimaeus? He's, Jesus goes into Jericho, and as he's leaving Jericho, there's a crowd around him, and the blind beggar Bartimaeus is sitting down, and he hears that it's Jesus who's coming. And do you remember what he does? He starts to cry out. He can't see, so he relies on people to, to tell him what's happening around him. He hears it's Jesus, and he says, Jesus, son of David! Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, Jesus. What's he crying for? Mercy. And what do the people do? You recall what they do? It's here in the text. Verse 48. What's it say? And many rebuked him. And many rebuked him. And told him to be silent. Here's a man, blind. Here's a healer, a known healer. This man has the power of God with him. They've heard it. They've seen it. And now here's a beggar, a blind beggar, crying for mercy. Have mercy on me. And rather than saying, oh, yeah, let's see if he'll heal you. Come, come. They don't do that. They say, be quiet. Stop making a ruckus. This merciless ethic of the Greeks and Romans and religious leaders of Israel had seeped into the hearts of God's people. They were merciless. They had no pity, no compassion, and this is not as God designed it to be. And so this is the cultural backdrop where Jesus is preaching And suddenly, here he is on this mountain where mercy is seen as weakness and a moral defect, and Jesus is bounding and resounding. Blessed are the merciful. Flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Beautiful. Jesus would go on to drive this point home. This isn't a passing 
kind of point in a sermon. You know, sometimes I preach sermons in here, and I actually have minor points to my sermons that I'm like, hey, this, the text, this really should kind of be brought out of the text, I'm, but it's not like a main point, and ooh, so I'll just make it a minor point. I'll drop it. I don't have time, and I gotta go forward, right? I'll do that in my sermons. This isn't a minor point for Jesus. He's gonna drive this home in his ministry and in his preaching later in the very same book, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus drives this point home with this famous parable of an unforgiving servant. You remember this parable? There's a king. It says he wished to settle accounts. And he calls in a servant. You remember this, right? One servant's brought to him who owes him 10,000 talents. That's a, a talent as a unit of measurement for money in those days. We might say uh, bags of money or pounds of gold or, or fat stacks, right? It's just lots of money, a unit of measurements, billion, trillion. 10,000 talents is just a crazy amount of money. I'll give you a little bit of perspective. One talent, just one, one talent was about 20 years of your life's work. It would have taken you 20 years of work to save up just one talent. If you had one talent just saved up, you were considered rich, wealthy. You would have been easily considered a wealthy, rich person. Just one. How much did this man owe? 10,000 talents. There's no way he would ever be able to pay it off. No way. And yet he pleads, give me patience, give me time, I'll pay it all. He's, both he knows in that petition and the king knows as he's hearing it, that ain't never going to happen. Never going to happen. But he pleads for mercy and it says the king had pity on him and forgave the debt. That'll change your life. You, you, you actually... I would, I would venture to say it's hard for us to comprehend how much uh, forgiveness of that type of debt would change your life if you've never been under that type of debt and if you've never been threatened to have your wife and children sold into servitude, into slavery until you paid it back. Like that's your life is going to go. And if you've never been in that situation and there are actually people in the world who are in that situation and so when they hear this, it's just unincredible. Like it's just massively crazy amount, and it's just good news for this guy. It's the best day of his life, 10,000 times over. The king had pity on him. Then it says this same servant, having been forgiven 10,000 talents, went and found a fellow servant. You remember this? And he owed him. Do you remember how much he owed him? Just 100 denarii. 100. That's, uh, a denarii is one day's wage. Just 100, 100 days of work. He was backlogged a little bit. That, that is a, a manageable debt. You could actually pay that off if you're wise with your funds. You worked hard. You, you could actually pay that back. And so he goes and he says, pay me all that you owe. The man pleads, the fellow servant pleads, give me time, I'll, I'll try. And it says he threw him in prison until he should pay the debt. Well, Word travels, and the master, the king, found out what happened. He summons this servant and says in verse 32 to 33, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And it says he took him and locked him up until he should pay every last penny. If I had to sum up this parable in a sentence, if you had to sum up this parable in a sentence, would it not be this? Blessed, flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or, woe to the merciless, for they shall receive judgment. We're going to come back to this at the end for application in our lives, but for now, see that this is a major point for Jesus. Or who could forget Matthew 25? I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you brought me a cup of water. And, and, and they'll say, when did we see you hungry and naked and thirsty? As much as you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Or who could forget the parable of the Good Samaritan? You recall the lawyer, which is, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's the law? How do you read it? You shall love the Lord your, all, with all your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, very good, go and do likewise, you'll live. And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. And he sums it up. He asks the lawyer, which one of these truly loved his neighbor? You remember the answer? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. Jesus says very well, go and do likewise. This is a major issue for Jesus. He wants, he longs for his people to be merciful. Why? Because God is rich, Ephesians 2 says, in mercy. And we are to reflect that. Point number two, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 8 Blessed are the pure in heart. Flourishing are the pure in heart. Why? For they, this is the greatest news here, they shall see God. This word, pure, katharos, means clean, blameless, unstained from guilt, you could say, katharos. You've heard this. Uh, maybe you've heard of a, a cathartic statement or catharsis. Have you heard of that word before? It's popular in psychology. It's a, an utterance, an expression of emotion that, that releases deep emotion within, and it feels good. It's cleansing. It's purging. Sometimes you might be real angry, and, ooh, and you get stressed, or you have all this stuff inside of you that's pent up, and, and the negative would be suppression. Supposedly, the positive is catharsis, getting it out of there, right? So I have this sledgehammer and this tire that I like to work out with, and there are times that I just I'm doing it for exercise, but they would I think a psychologist would say that's cathartic. I'm just smashing this tire like, oh, Pastor Bill. Oh, Pastor Randy. <laughs> no, <laughs> whoa, it's me, right? Smash, right? No, I'm kidding, never. Um, it's just, it, 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 it is releasing. So I'm like, oh, I kind of feel better, right? I feel good. That's, that was what psychologists would call a cathartic exercise. It purges, it releases, katharos, pure in heart. He says, flourishing are the pure in hearts. 
Now, to be sure, Jesus is not saying flourishing are those who hit tires with hammers. That would be a lot more simple, wouldn't it? No. To be pure in heart here is to be wholly devoted to God in the deepest recesses of your soul, life, mind, desires, all of it, the whole package. To be pure in heart is single-minded devotion to God. It's not seeking to constantly put on a front or the church face to pretend to be something that it isn't. It is single-mindedly living and consumed with the glory of God and readily confesses areas that it struggles. Again, you've got to remember the context of where this is being preached. We're in Israel. The religious leaders are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. You have to recall, these are a people, leaders that are focused on outward displays of purity, but inwardly they are wicked and destitute of any good thing. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 23? So now this is Matthew 5, which is like at the end. We're going to get here eventually one day in eight more years. We'll get here, right? But here Jesus, he's now going to address directly. Right now he's addressing the disciples and his audience, but he's going to turn his sights to directly addressing the religious leaders in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. Check this out. Jesus says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You don't say woe to these people. These are considered to be like the, the highest caliber of godly and devotion and religiosity in this area. And Jesus starts out, woe to you, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's only one of the woes that Jesus said to them. There's more. These are incredibly heavy and vivid words. Just think if you saw somebody go up on live national TV and see President Biden there and and somebody of, of notable rank and repute just starts laying into him. Woe to you. Woe to you. And just laying in to these issues. That would be stunning. That would make every newspaper and headline news, and imagine nobody stopping him. Heavy words. And Jesus says in contrast to this, flourishing are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. For they shall see God. In contrast, this should be our cry, beloved. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And why should you want this pure heart? Jesus says, here it is, they shall see God. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because you're going to see God. 
realize this, for God to see you favorably is an amazing thing. For God to look at you, he's looking at you, right? He knows you today, this minute. For, for God to look at you favorably is life-changing. This is at, at core of the blessing of Aaron, right? The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and lift up his countenance on you. These are all expressing the same thing at core of this. That's the blessing, to have God look at you. But for you to see his face. The opposite, not just for God to see you, but for you to see his face is literally the height of human experience and reality. For you to see God is transformative. Every day, I think the news reported it. I don't know what the most recent one is. Josiah, if you're watching this, perhaps you can correct us if I'm way off, all right? But the, the most recent arrivals of Maui, people coming to Maui every day, six to 7,000 people get off a plane and come to our islands every single day. It's just they're coming and they're coming in droves, and, and they're all here to see the beauty of Maui to bask in the beautiful sunshine, to catch an incredible sunset, to, to see all that these islands have to offer. And really, for many of them, this is a vacation that will, they'll remember the rest of their lives. Maybe something they spent most of their life hoping for a day that I could just go to Maui and be there. None of it compares to seeing God. None of it compares. It pales in comparison. The most beautiful sunset from atop Haleakala or the west side or Kihei or Polipoli pales in comparison to seeing the face of God. If you could go anywhere, any natural beauty that this world has to offer at best is a dim reflection of the creator who made it. And when you see that beauty in creation, that glorious sunset, that mountain range, that deep valley or ravine or canyon, like the Grand Canyon or the one on, on Kauai, when you see that, what your heart is singing over is just the echo of the glory of God in creation. Imagine if you saw the very source of it. To see the face of God is the height of human experience. That's creation. We could turn our eyes to Hollywood where billions of dollars are pumped in and we get incredible visual displays of beauty and imagination and creativity. But to see God would truly break the box office and us with it. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. You remember what Isaiah says when he saw God? Immediately he pronounces a woe on himself. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is, he just pronounces a woe on himself. Or John, the apostle, sees Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. You remember what happened to him? He fell at his feet as though dead. The 
these people who say they saw God and are just like jolly and uh, life is like, uh, it's good. They write books and things like that. It was just this beautiful blue orb, right? These, these experiences that people have are totally counter to what we read in the scriptures. Totally counter. The boy who died and went to heaven, is heaven for real? All this kind of stuff. The uniform reaction of people when they see the glorified God as they fall down. Woe is me. I can't handle. They have to be supernaturally strengthened to even behold and to be sustained under the weight of glory. The closest we could probably get to it would be Moses. You remember Moses asked God, God, God says, ask me something, I'll give it to you. Moses says, show me your glory. I'd love to see it. You remember what God says in Exodus 33? No man can see my face and live. I'll show you my back. <laughs> I'll let you see the back. If you see my face, you're going to die. And we remember what happens. God causes all of his goodness to pass before him. He proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate, a gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faith. Right? He just goes on this beautiful uh, proclamation of God's goodness. And Moses comes down from the mountain. What's happening to his face? right? It's shining. It's shining. Some of the older translations say he was horned, right? So did Moses have horns or was his face shining, right? It's actually, it's most likely shining in glory and he has to cover it up because the people are kind of freaked out as they're looking at him. To see God, to behold God results in becoming like God and at once it satisfies you and changes you forever. Flourishing are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. Revelation 22, verse 3 to 5, gives us a sneak peek. A sneak peek uh, at this. It's kind of like the, the scene after the credits roll, right? The credits are rolling, is going, the director, the cast, the production company, and then there's that post-credit scene. And it gives you a sneak peek, so to speak, the rest of the story, maybe a teaser of what's to come. You could say Revelation 22, 3 through 5 is like that. This is the post-credits trailer to the Sermon on the Mount. Check this out. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. What's verse 4 say? They will see his what? They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow. They will see his face, he says. What a beautiful hope in heaven we will receive new glorified bodies that actually have the capacity to behold the glory of God face to face and not die. 
Your body can't stand the weight of glory right now. It is fallen. It's, Paul calls it this body of death. Who will deliver me from it? But a day will come, 1 Corinthians 15, when that trump resounds in a moment and the twinkling when I will be changed to be like him with glorified bodies. It's my youngest son's birthday today. Tad in July 11. He's smiling now, trying to stop his smile. For his birthday, he wanted to go to the trampoline park. So we took him to the trampoline park. And we jumped, and before I jumped, guess what I was doing in the corner, kind of like? Trying not to pull a Nick Tanaka. <laughs> Come out limping, break my leg. Why? Because this is a body of death. If I'm not careful, it'll get hurt. I don't have the capacity to run and jump and play with my child as I would like to without having to think of an injury. In like manner, this body of death is ill-equipped to behold the weight of glory, to see God face to face without evaporating. But a day is coming. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All right, let's close up with some application. Let's, let's apply this to our life. There's so much to say here. First one, merciful. Flourishing are the merciful. First, I, I got to say this every time. Remember, these are works of grace in the heart of a person. These are works of God that make you truly merciful. So as we come to Christ as King, as we repent by faith and believe in Him and yield ourselves wholly to Him, He does this incredible work in us, and, though, and thus we become flourishing. We also have to remember another truth. This is God's work in us, yet we aren't wholly passive, right? We don't kind of sit back passively in our recliner and God just kind of waves His wand over us and makes us merciful, right? Makes us pure in heart. God, just do your work. I won't do nothing. And so I want to offer you things in your life, thoughts, questions to ask, so that you can grow in being merciful. And as I do this, I don't do it to convict you for the sake of condemnation or to make you feel bad. I do it that the Spirit might change you might reveal in you areas that, because if you're like me, you might come to a sermon and think, I'm good. <laughs> Other people need this. I'm all right. I don't need this as much. I hope, I hope they hear this. And, and I can totally miss what the Spirit wants to do in my heart. And so that's why I do these things. Sometimes to, to break us out of our mold of thinking, here's what it is to be merciful, or here's what it is to be pure in heart, so that we might be changed, and not just changed and convicted, but ultimately flourishing. Flourishing. All right, here we go. First thing, merciful. Flourishing are the merciful. If you have never come to God for mercy and the forgiveness of your sins, that is step number one. If you have never received the mercy of God, which requires that you realize you sin against a holy God, that your offense breaking of God's law incurs his wrath on you, that God is angry with you, that you deserve punishment, death, and hell, you must admit that first, and then you must look to God and see that while you may have offended him, he is full of mercy. 
He is bursting at the seams with mercy. The God of the Bible, through Jesus, loves. He delights to show mercy to sinners. That's the first step. That you see that though I have offended God, he is delighted to show me mercy if I will come to him. And so maybe you're here this morning and your sinful past or your sinful present looms over your conscience, looms over your mind. Perhaps you've tried everything to silence that conscience. Maybe you take some form of medication. Maybe you self-medicate alcohol, substance abuse. Maybe you don't self-medicate. Maybe you try to busy your mind with whatever new worldview or philosophy or teaching you can find, and, and it proves helpful for a bit. As you go from thing to thing to thing, a, a new idea comes, man, I try, this is going to change my life. But like a, like a really tough stain, as soon as you apply a cleaner, you wipe it, it looks like it's gone, but as it dries, you find the stain remains. Eventually, the newness of these things wear off, and your soul and conscience tremble again. Or maybe distractedness is your go-to. You distract yourself. Netflix, Hulu, TV, movie, social media, anything else you can find. But there in the silence of the night, in the still of the morning, when you go to bed and when you wake up, your conscience testifies against you. I have good news for you this morning. I have something better than a distraction. I have something more potent than a new idea. We have something more satisfying than self-medication. What you need this morning is to be reconciled to God, and you need mercy that leads to forgiveness. And God is ready to offer it today. If you will turn to Jesus, if you will yield yourself wholly to him, if you will by faith seek him for repentance, for forgiveness and mercy, he will gladly, delightfully grant it. You will not be cast out. Instead, you will be brought in, healed, and you will find life forever, true life. And it's all available today if you will come. Come and experience that our Lord is full of mercy. For the rest of you, maybe you've done this, but we're all works in progress, aren't we? Maybe you've done this. You've given your life to Christ, but all of us, you, me alike, we are works in progress. Here, here's what I want you to do. Go home and pray. Actually, maybe don't even make it home. Maybe just go to your car or go to a corner of the church if you want. But, but go home and ask God today for areas in your heart where you lack mercy. God, you say flourishing are the merciful. Where, where do I lack mercy? Where can I grow in mercy? Where is compassion lacking in my life? Where has bitterness set in in my heart? It is nearly impossible to show genuine mercy and to be bitter at the same time. Let's flesh this out a little bit. So as you're praying and to help your praying, 
Let's flesh it out. We see this play out, unfortunately, in the relationships of those who are closest to us, don't we? It seems so easy to be kind and merciful to those who are like furthest out in the extremities of our relational circles, but as, as we move closer to those we spend the most time with, it, find it becomes harder and harder. It's, it's easy to lack mercy with people we know the longest. The reason for that is because there can be this accumulation of offenses that rolls over like a tab. Eventually, our fellow servants reach that 100 denarii mark, and we say, pay up, right? Oh, your tab is run out. I need payment. And when that happens, mercy is lacking. So what I'm doing is I worked out here, we got a little bit lower, now we're going to get a street level, okay? We're going to get a street level view. This can play out with roommates who always leave their dirty dishes unwashed. It's soaking, right? I'm soaking it. It can play out with roommates that don't ever take out the trash, they just shove it deeper and deeper, and when it's overflowing, they put their knee on, no, right? (laughs) Just take it out already, right? Take it out. That's me. This can exist with spouses as one offense piles on top of another. Your communication, once it was maybe warm, accompanied by love, patience, affection, all displayed in words. It can come out in one irritable comment, one sharp retort after another, and it seems like you just drift in days of just jabs. This can exist in churches as well in various ways. Can look like showing dissatisfaction, criticism, complaining, frustration. Why isn't this done? Or why isn't this happening? Or why didn't this happen how I think it should have happened or could have happened? And when we do this, we often make these complaints without ever wondering how the people who are actually doing those things are actually doing. We can lack mercy. We can be like those Pharisees and scribes with the woman in adultery not so much concerned about her and more concerned about the final outcome. When this happens, that's a sure sign that our heart needs to grow in mercy. Another way to see and ask the Lord is to view uh, how your attitude is towards the poor and needy. Poor or needy. How do you view those who are poor? How do you view those who are needy? This can expose a heart that lacks mercy. We often use many excuses to justify our lack of mercy, our own inaction, our own unwillingness to get involved and help those in need, when in reality what may be happening is we may be hard-hearted and we may look for semi-valid sounding reasons to cover up our lack of mercy. They're just going to spend it on alcohol after all. They got themselves into this. 
And those may sound like valid reasons, and indeed perhaps they are. That may be a valid reason to not give them help like that. But how are you then going to help them? Are you going to give to Maui Rescue Mission? Are you going to give to organizations that help people down and in need? Are you going to come alongside and help volunteer in these things? But no, often we just raise the excuse and stop there without ever actually contributing to be helpful. Hard-heartedness doesn't always look mean and gruff, does it? It often just looks like busyness and not caring enough to slow down. So we support and encourage the support of organizations that do slow down and that do minister to those who are in need in various ways. Let me give you a few of them. And you, I encourage you to, uh, we give to them as a church. You can give to them also. You can, uh, more importantly, probably come alongside and find a way to help them. Because a lot of organizations, they do need funds, but they need hands. They need hands. And so here's a few that we encourage and support. Maui Rescue Mission. We have their trailer in the back there. They do uh, great work with the homeless across Maui. Malama Pregnancy Center is another fantastic uh, ministry that ministers to the poor and needy, women who are in pregnancy and crisis. Uh, prison ministry, Pastor Bill goes into the prison. Uh, it just opened up, praise God. So MCCC, we hear you, we got you. Pastor Bill goes in, Bob's doing great work with him. Uh, wonderful work that they do. Prison ministry, if you want to get involved there, talk to Pastor Bill or one of these guys and they'll get you connected preschool ministry to care for children and families at early ages of life that have many needs. Oh my goodness, if you pray and get to know them, there are many needs and hurting families there. The, uh, we, we have the BCCM that comes in and seeks to not just meet temporal, external needs, but to really address issues of the heart that can truly change. What well, our hope is that out of love for Christ and out of obedience to the Great Commission, that we would develop these systems and partnerships that care for the whole person sin and so see lives changed, transformed, and lived for the glory of God and truly flourishing. I pray that you would hear this, that your heart might be moved to be merciful and to move to meet needs. The antidote to a lack of mercy is to realize that you are the servant who owes 10,000 talents to never forget. Maybe just inscribe 10,000 on the front of your Bible or on your mirror or on a postcard to never forget, that's me. I was forgiven 10,000 talents. I don't know if Rat Matt Redman, who wrote that song, uh, I, I doubt that he listens to my sermons, but, but I don't know if he had that in the backdrop of his mind when he wrote 10,000 Reasons. I don't think it was the best I can find. It was just the song on Psalm 103. But if, if he hears this, somebody let him know 10,000 Reasons comes out of Matthew chapter 18. 10,000 reasons because I've been forgiven 10,000 talents and so I can sing bless the Lord O my soul there's a direct correlation in your heart with how much mercy you remember and directly tied to remembering your own debt that's merciful number two blessed are the pure in heart this will be brief they shall see God where are you this is part of your prayer where are you less than what you appear to be to others? 
Where are you less than what you appear to be to others? Are there reservations in your person, in your mind, that are impure and you know it? Blessed are the pure in heart. Take radical measures against these to flee temptation. Don't exchange the hope of seeing the satisfying face of God with temporal, worldly, fleeting pleasures. Whether that be purity as it regards the lust of the flesh or pornography or things of that nature, whether it be those things, flee them. Or, this actually includes a lot more, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Paul would have Timothy to see here that linked with an impure heart is a quarrelsome spirit that seeks to sow discord and controversy and debate and quarreling. These people also lack a pure heart. If you find that to be you, hear Paul say, flee these things. Pursue in its place righteousness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue peace. What's the next one that comes after blessed are the pure in heart? Blessed are the peacemakers. You won't be a peacemaker if you aren't pure in heart. Pursue single-hearted, whole-person devotion to God. And as God wills, we will together find flourishing are the pure in heart. And we shall all, by his grace, see God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this instruction on mercy and purity of heart. I pray, Father, that we would remember as we leave here, all of us, that we are the servant that has been forgiven 10,000 talents. May we never forget it, and may we walk out of fullness of mercy to overflow to others and and thus be merciful. So, Father, would you do this, we pray, in our hearts, do this in our community. For your glory we ask. Amen. All right. Now is.